is the efficacy, the accuracy, and the necessity to be constantly in the word of God. Because Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that's what this book is, the word of God. And so when you read it, it's like feeding your spirit man. And then when all hell breaks out, that spirit man, man rises up big, bigger than uh, the situation that's coming against you. That's why the word says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Well, he's not great in you if you don't feed him. Amen? So let's say this. Father, I believe with all my heart that you're here tonight. And you have a word for me. Thank you, Father. I give you my ears, my eyes, my heart, and my mind. And I boldly declare that tonight I will be changed by the word of God in Jesus' name. You believe that? Tell yourself, tell someone, I'm going to be changed by the word of God tonight. Amen. Thank you so much for coming out. This, I guess it's still rainy out. Cold night. Appreciate you being here. Uh, just one quick announcement. Tomorrow, uh, we are going to be moving stone. Uh, very blessed with some stone. So we're going to be moving a pile of stone to complete Brian's driveway. So we're all meeting here at 5 o'clock tomorrow. Guys, if you want to come out, need some metal rakes, strong back. At 5 o'clock tomorrow, and that shouldn't take us maybe just a, maybe an hour, a couple hours, and we'll get that done. We have our normal time of prayer. So if you are available tomorrow night, Show up here at the church at 5 o'clock, bring a rake, bring a shovel, and we will use you. Amen? Put your hands out to me. Let's pray in agreement. Father, we agree in the name of Jesus that every word that proceeds from this pulpit is from your heart through my lips. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I can do nothing of myself. It's your power in me. Help me to proclaim this truth accurately, clearly. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So last week, I... Uh, left off asking a question. The purpose of this whole series that I'm doing is to get you hungry for your Bible, to get you reading this thing. You know, because people think it's a fairy tale or, or just some, you know, stupid religious thing. No, because when you read the Word, you find out what God's will is for your life. You find out what God's will is on this earth. Every person will stand before God someday. And we're not going to have an excuse because we're living in a day and age where this book is so clear to us. You can get so many translations. You can get it on your iPad, iPhones, uh, get on computers, you can get it online. All, it's everywhere. God has surrounded us with the truth. So Jesus said, when you stand before me, I'm not going to judge you. The word will judge you. What does that mean, the word will judge you? It's like if you were given an instruction well, let's take a particular law. We always use that stop sign law, right? The law says you don't go through a stop sign. So he doesn't have to stand there and explain to the judge what's wrong, why you're going to jail, whatever, because you went through a stop sign. You know what the law is. If you don't know what the law is, you're going to break it. And that's why he gives us the word of God. There's so many promises and there's so many blessings that you can stand upon, that when you, when you come up something that's coming against you, if you speak the word, it works. The word works when you speak it. Amen? You can't speak it if you don't know it. So I left off asking a question, and that is this. Is the New Testament an accurate historic account? Is it really a good book? Was it just made up? Somebody say, well, it contradicts itself. It doesn't. These are people that don't understand it. So there's three generally accepted tests for a historical accuracy. Is this book accurate? 
kind of a review bit tonight, but is any book accurate? So scientists and historians and people that study books say these are the tests that we give to a text to determine whether it's accurate or not. Number one, it's called the bibliographical test. The bibliographical test seeks to determine if we can reconstruct the original Old Testament writings with the old copies at hand. Is there enough proof, out, or is enough stuff written out there, or was it just one book found, somebody multiplied it, and they made it available? No, there's a lot of stuff out there. In the case of 16 well-known classical authors around that time and the Greeks, I don't know these guys, you may, Plutarch, Polybius, authors of that order, the total number of the oldest copies that they have are typically less than 10. Oh, this is an accurate book because we found 10. The earliest copies date from 750 BC to 1600 years after the original manuscripts were penned. Yet we consider these works accurate and written by those who claim to be the authors, less than 10 copies. Let's take the Bible. The New Testament, on the other hand, has 5,300 Greek manuscripts and manuscript portions. 10,000 Latin Vulgate, that was one of the translations of the original writings, 9,300 9, other versions, plus 36,000 early quotations from the New Testament from early patriarchs of the Christian church. If it wasn't true, why were these guys quoting? It wasn't something just made up. All but a few verses of the entire text could be reconstructed from these alone. It's not coincidence. The Bible is not a coincidence. Remember, this wasn't written overnight. It's written over thousands of years. And it was put together in one text. And the way they determined to put it together is what's called the scarlet thread. There's a mention of a coming Messiah throughout every book. You read it and understand it. Now, this kind of evidence would be golden to a historian. No other ancient literature has ever come close to supplying historians and text, textual critics with such an abundance of data. So it passes this test. There's enough copies out, there's enough information over all these years to prove that this is an accurate book. Number two, the second test to determine historic accuracy and reliability is called the internal evidence test. This text assert, this test I should say, asserts that one is to assume the truth of reporting of ancient document and not assume either fraud, incompetence, or error unless the author of the document has disqualified, disqualified himself by their presence. For instance, do the New Testament writers contradict themselves? Is there anything in their writings that causes one to suspect their trustworthiness? Are there statements or assertions in the text which are demonstrably false according to known archaeological, historical, or scientific data? The answer is no. They are finding all the time historic proof that these fables are absolutely true. They found the remains of Jericho. You know, the Jerichos, they marched around. The Lord told them back in Joshua to march around the walls, and uh, it was, seemed to make it didn't make any sense, but the walls came down. It, the walls were so thick, they said eight chariots could ride across the walls. Now, what historians found and archaeologists found, and you're not going to read a lot about this because they don't want to prove the Bible is real, is that the walls did not, imagine, I don't know how wide a chariot is, but imagine how wide those walls had to be, maybe wider than this building. 
and they were pretty high up. So if they fell over, you'd be climbing over rubble while the enemy's shooting arrows at you. But you know what they found out? They found out that the walls were pushed down. Now, you're not going to read this because they, oh, no, we can't let this. Same thing. They found Noah's Ark, but they won't let you near it. Why? Because it's going to prove the Bible. And if the Bible's right in some areas, it's going to be right in all the areas. Amen? So they're finding over and over again that there's biblical proofs. I, I love to watch some of the channels that try to disprove the Bible. Like they said, well, when the Red Sea, when they crossed the Red Sea, it really didn't mount up that there was a low tide and they walked through it. Yeah, but there's nowhere there where it says it's dry land. It's marshy in those areas. And that's not the area where they crossed. My son had the privilege of uh, being smuggled, and I mean smuggled, into, into Egypt in the Sinai where there was the real place where Mount Sinai was. So we, when Christians go on these tours and they go to Mount Sinai, ain't the real one. They don't want you to be at the real one. Because he said, Dad, when you go up there, you could understand how Moses could see out. He could see Egypt, he could see Sinai, and he could see Israel all from that spot. And there was one spot on the mount where it was like all surrounded, like it was a big amphitheater. Because the Bible says that he addressed the children of Israel. How could he address that many? There were probably a couple million. Because the way it was formed, it was like a, like a sound chamber. But you won't read about this in history books. Why? Because it'll prove that the Bible is accurate. And they don't want it to be accurate. Amen? So there's enough historic facts to prove that the Bible is right. Do you know that there were other authors around at that time Jesus was there? It wasn't just the guys that wrote the Bible. In the writings of a guy by the name of Pathias, which is about 130 A.D. Do you ever understand what A.D. means? Everybody thinks it's after death. No, it's after his birth. A.D. means after the birth of Christ. So how old was Jesus when he was three years old? Three A.D. Amen? I thought it was after death, but look it up, okay? This guy writes about 138 days. This is after the death of Jesus. Around around the time, a little bit after when the Bible writers wrote the book, he writes that the John the Apostle himself noted that Mark, in writing his gospel, quote, wrote down accurately whatsoever Paul told him to write. So here's, here's an historian saying Paul the Apostle told Mark what to write. This is in his book. And he wrote it down accurately. He remembered all the things that Christ has done. Paul talked about it. And then Mark wrote it down, the book of Mark. So Mark committed no error, for he was careful of one thing, not to admit any of the things Peter had heard or not to state them falsely. That's the quote in this guy's historic book. Papias also asserts that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John were all based on reliable eyewitness testimony. This is a historian saying, whatever these guys wrote, I'm telling you, it's true. In his book, The Verdict of History, Dr. Gary Habermas discusses 39 ancient sources which refer to over 100 facts concerning Jesus' teachings and resurrections, 24 including secular accounts that refer to his divine nature. Seven different books are claiming this guy, Jesus, was not just another man. In fact, if you read, I read Josephus. He was a best-known historian back then. 
And he said, this guy, Jesus, a man, if indeed he is a man. See, as a historian, we can't even call him a Christian. He said, there's something about this Jesus. Not just in the Bible, but read in other historic books. Amen? The same, another guy, Dr. Uh, Craig Bloomberg, he's a New Testament authority, points out, and I quote, ancient historians generally dealt with leading figures in major philosophical movements, yet the amount that we can learn about Jesus from non-Christian sources that confirm key events and teaching in his life are remarkable. Imagine that. Other people were writing the same thing that the gospel guys were writing, that we call the Bible that can prove that Jesus was here and he was the son of God, okay? Considering these events and teachings fit none of the basic categories ancient historians would write about. Why would they write about it? Because Jesus was a unique historic figure at that time. Besides these generally accepted tests for determining historic account accuracy, there are other factors to consider. I'm reading, so forgive me. The failure of the enemies of Jesus to quench his claims. Do you realize how many people have tried to just wipe Jesus' memory off the face of the earth? There's people out there today. Bibles are fake. Look at everything that's going on. I want to start talking about sports and everything again. That are trying to get kids out of church. There's something, something is, I don't know, you guys conspiracy theory, I don't know what you call it. Something, it's amazing. And those of you that are my age will understand. Remember the way Sundays used to be? It's not that way anymore. Why? Okay, the almighty dollar, but there were things that used to take place on Saturdays that are not taking place on Sunday mornings. Why? Is there, is, it's almost like conspiracies. We do not want our kids to go to church because you're going to hear something that they don't want you to hear. They want you to have faith in men, not faith in God. But there's that saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. Bottom line, down deep inside, everybody knows. Get away from all your peer pressure. Get away from all the stuff you hear, the news, half of which is fake anyway. Get away from it and be by yourself. Learn to sit by yourself sometime. And there's something down deep inside you that's a magnet toward there's something more to this than just my life. I was reading somewhere that they said that a younger generation believes a lot in spirituality. They believe that when they die, their spirit will just leave their body and I don't know where it goes, but it goes to spirit land somewhere. They're trying to compensate for the fact there is a heaven. That when you die, you will go. You, you will never die. See, we, we cannot comprehend death. Do you feel like you're really going to die? Because you don't. Your body does. But the spirit, man, goes. How many of you read secular accounts where people have been on operating tables, right? And they died. And they said, my body, it's actually their spirit, floated up and they were watching the operation or something take place. And then something, whatever, they went back in their body. These are secular accounts of people that probably didn't believe in God, didn't believe in heaven, and had an experience that really made them think twice. They said when the astronauts went up, those guys come back believers. Because there's no way that bowl of dirt and all this stuff just happened on its own. No way, no way. Amen? So 
Here's another proof, the failure of the enemies of Jesus to quench his claim. All those enemies, had, all they had to do was disprove his claim to be, to be Messiah, was to show that he did not fulfill messianic prophecy. Yet he fulfilled every messianic prophecy. Yet to this day, rather than disprove the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, do you know that the Jews blocked them out of their scriptures, especially Isaiah 53? Did you know that? It's blocked out in your Bible. Why? Because that's the exact prophetic utterance. That, that's the prediction that Jesus was going to come. Everything that happened to Jesus was fulfilled in Isaiah 53. They can't disprove it, so what do you do? You black it out. And that's what they do. They can't accept it as truth. What Jesus did was not done in secret. Most of his miracles and his teachings were done in public, in the sight of hundreds of witnesses. So my question always was, before you know, I started believing in God and all that, was, well, why didn't anybody else write anything? Well, they did. We said that. But most of the communication that took place back in that day was by storytelling. These guys were not literate. They couldn't write. So what they did from generation to generation, they would pass these stories down. But some of them had enough sense to pass it down, like Paul did. And Paul said, Mark, I want you to write this stuff down. Now, Paul wasn't around when Jesus was around. Paul was told by the other disciples. Remember, Paul wasn't accepted by Christians, and he was hated by the Jews. But he heard enough firsthand accounts. Peter was with Jesus. And there we have the books of what? 1st, 2nd, 3rd Peter, right? There's a 1st and 2nd Peter, sorry. And then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, John the Beloved. Then we have the Revelation. By written by the apostles, those guys that were with Jesus, right? Amen. So what happened that caused many of the same people, Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, and Jewish leaders who were responsible for his execution to become believers? Anybody ever see the Passion? That was incredibly accurate. And it was even done in Hebrew, not Hebrew. It was Greek Aramaic, I guess. But all these guys that were against Jesus, the same time that Jesus was being crucified, this is a stark fact, the same time Jesus was being crucified, he's called the Lamb of God. The Jewish leaders were in the temple. And if you understand that layout of the temple, there was the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies. And there was a curtain here about three or four, they say three to five inches thick, possibly 60 feet high, 40 feet wide, that blocked the entrance so no one could go into that Holy of Holies unless it was deemed of God, and only the high priest could go. And I heard a story, tradition said that they would put bells on their robes. So as long as he went in behind that curtain and they heard those bells jingling, they knew he was alive. Because if he had not gone through the ceremonial washings that were required, he'd be struck dead when he went in there. Whether somewhere or not, I don't know. But this curtain made it pitch black in that room. So when they went in to minister by candle, only they were permitted to be there. Only the high priest. When Jesus was crucified, he said the term, it is finished 
which in reality was a very popular Greek term back then. They found this out when they found some stuff buried in a garbage dump, that that same phrase that he used should have been actually translated paid in full. And when he proclaimed that on the cross, paid in full, that curtain ripped from the top to the bottom. She went, rip. What do you think the guys that were in there were thinking? The historic account, you saw it in the movies and stuff, that when Jesus was on that cross and that Roman soldier pierced his side with the spear because if you were definitely crucified and died or dying, your heart would burst and your whole peritoneal cavity would fill it with blood. So when they pierced it, they saw the blood come out so they knew Jesus essentially died of a broken heart. What did the Roman soldiers, they saw the sky get dark, there was an earthquake, and the Roman soldiers who were there to guard him said, truly, this is the Son of God. I guarantee you those guys in that temple changed their mind. Here's another thing that happened. It's a historic account. When that earthquake occurred, when Jesus died, it said the, the ground shook, that graves opened up, and Old Testament saints came up out of their graves. So can you imagine? And they walked around in the city, and people knew who they were. Uncle Horschel's back. And then if you read in the book of Acts, it says that Jesus remained on the earth for 40 days and did a tremendous amount of miracles. Listen, imagine you were in the audience, and maybe you heard the story, but you're in the audience back, and you see Jesus die on that cross. You see, him, see them take him down, they wrap him up. In fact, I was reading that when they wrapped you in those spices, which they did, and then they were going to go back and do more, 200 pounds. And when they wrapped you up, you were, you were, this wasn't a loose wrapping. This was like, if you ever work with, um, what is it, paper mache? You soak the paper in plaster and you wrap it and it gets hard. He was encased like a cocoon. And there was no way he could have gotten out of that thing except by divine intervention. Because when the ladies went back and they found the tomb, all it was was that grave cloths laying there. And he came back. And imagine you were one of the guys that saw him die, and now you see him alive. And guys, he came back with scars on his head, holes in his hands, and his feet. And a, remember doubting Thomas? I won't believe unless I see it. And he came, he came through a wall of a room where the disciples were and said to them, you want to take a check it out? Look at that. When you and I go to heaven, he will still bear those scars. When we take communion, we go to those crosses, You got, I see... I see up there in that cross a teeny tiny part of that thing he's being punished for is Jim Petra. Put your name up there. He paid for every sin you ever committed in your life. He died, he suffered and died for you. And you're going to have the guts and the goal to stand before God and say, well, I was a good person and I did this and I did that. And there's the son of God who died on the cross for you with still his hands pierced scars on him who died for your sin, and you're going to take credit for your salvation? I don't think so. I'm glad I'm not God. 
Because if my son died for you and you came up, goodbye, you're gone. I'm getting off on a tangent here. Why did all these unbelievers, in one day, it says in the book of Acts, 3,000 people who hated Jesus, who considered these guys criminals, 3,000 of them are pricked in their hearts. And they say, what must we do to be saved? 3,000 people receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in one day. Because one fisherman who couldn't put two words together without a curse word, got up under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and preached the gospel. Basically, he said, and this guy you crucified is the Son of God. And you crucified him. Man, talk about conviction. And they repented. When you received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you died for me. And let me tell you, I love you. I'll do whatever I can to, to make sure that I'm doing what you want me to do on this earth. Remember, we don't go to church. We don't pray. We don't read the Bible out of obligation. We do it out of appreciation. Christians aren't weirdos. We just appreciate what the Son of God has done for us. Why did these people believe? I'm going to put my two cents in here, a couple points. Why is the name of Jesus so powerful that it's used as a curse word? I get around people, and some know I'm a pastor, others don't. And they always say, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Why don't they say Buddha or Muhammad? Why do they say Jesus Christ? Because the devil, when they don't know Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, the enemy will use them to even curse the name of God. Think about it. When you hear somebody say that, Jesus Christ, it, it just it does something to me when they say it. I think I'm going to get in the habit when they say Jesus Christ, say hallelujah. Praise his holy name. Before, when I was in medical sales and I kind of knew about God and kind of kind of was saved, and I just thought I had to be a good person, and I knew I wasn't. It always amazes me, and I know I say this a lot, but when people hit their hand with a hammer, they don't say Buddha. They'll say a curse word, but a lot of the time they go, Jesus Christ. Why? That sparked my interest. This is my two. Why his name? Why can people get together and talk about spirituality but as soon as you mention the name of Jesus, watch what happens. Get around Christians who are talking about Jesus and start talking about the Holy Spirit. And they get the heebie-jeebies. See, that's what spark, I'm a scientific thinker. That always sparked my interest. Secondly, how can this faith we hold, if so inaccurate and so contradictory, have withstood the criticism and persecution of the last 20 centuries. And don't anybody give you this garbage that, uh, that Islam is the fastest growing religion. It is not. People want you to think that. I talked talk to enough guys from all around the world. They say Islam, Muhammad, all these people, Muslims are being converted by the thousands. Why? Because Christianity has a hope to it. What fool straps a bomb to themselves and blow themselves apart thinking that they're going to get some type of reward? What is it, 70 virgins are waiting for them? Ain't virgins very long if that's where they're going, and that you do that, right? Stupid. 
That's how demonic that is. Why would a group like ISIS take Christians and slit their throats on a beach? Christianity, which preaches love, kindness, forgiveness, and want to kill them. If, is that demonic or what? Why would Hitler try to eradicate the Jews? Why during the Spanish Inquisition they try to kill the Jews? Because Satan hates the Jews. Why? Because they were God's original people. And they still are favored by God. The next point is, is it coincidence that most of what the Bible has predicted has come to pass? Did you know that? I studied this. God promised to gather his people, the Jews, once again into a place. And do you know that Jews continually begin the, are migrating to Israel? Did you ever see the movie Exodus? It says in the Bible that a nation would be formed in one day for the Jews. What a ridiculous prediction. Made thousands of years ago. And in one day in 1948, the United Nations at that time proclaims Israel a nation. In one day. Palestinians didn't like it. Still don't like it today. I'm not taking sides. I'm just telling you, this boy, who's a scientific thinker, says, oh my God, he said in one day I will form this nation. Nations don't form in one day, but that one did. And he said, I will gather my people from all nations. The Jews are still coming by boatloads. They're immigrating from Eastern Europe and Africa and whatever, coming to Israel. Why? There's something in them that's drawing them there. If anything proves to me that the Bible is true and that God is real, it's the Jew. It's Israel. There have been so many attempts to annihilate them. Isn't there? Hasn't there been? The nation of Israel has been attacked by overwhelming forces over and over and over again. Was you asking me about the book? on the, I followed that war. Was it the Six-Day War? Six-Day War. I followed that. I was, I was, I don't know, I think I was in high school. I was absolutely enamored by it. I just couldn't believe it. I had a map of Israel up, and I had these arrows shown. I mean, the, the Israeli, Israeli army was so outnumbered. You had Syria, Lebanon, Jordan. So all these countries were, with massive armies were coming in this little nation. We did nothing. One of the stories that I read, Joe, I can't remember what the book was or when I read it, where I read it. It said that this, the armored divisions were coming at Israel. And Israel wasn't prepared. And for some unknown reason to this day, they all conked out. Tanks. Whether they ran out of fuel or whatever. And it gave Israel enough time to muster their forces and they defeated all these nations. And that's why we want that land back that they took. Yeah, they took it back because that's where they're being attacked from. I'm not taking sides. I'm just telling you, man, this is supernatural. The Bible predicted that the Messiah would come before the second destruction of the Jewish temple. Did you know that? Which occurred as Jesus predicted also in 70 AD. How in the world can the Jew, biblical, prophetic, people who study prophecy, not think that Jesus was the Messiah when it said all throughout the Bible that in Daniel especially, that the Messiah would come before the, second, before the destruction, second time of the temple. Remember Jesus said, 
not one stone will be upon another. In 70 AD, the Roman Empire had it with the Jews and came in and leveled Israel, leveled Jerusalem, and absolutely destroyed the temple, which meant the Messiah had to come back before that happened. And guess who that was? Jesus. That's my, my two cents. There's something about that name. Here's another thing. Those of you my age, do you remember the Middle East? Sand, nothing. A bunch of nomads, nothing. That was, a, that was like a wasteland. You never heard anything about that area. All of a sudden, a desert place of sand and nothingness, the Middle East becomes the focal point of history today. Why? Well, they found this black stuff under the sand called oil. And now, there's a lot of wealth over there. And we live on oil. I go to Wawa every now and then, and I'm amazed. This isn't Wawa alone. Every single pump is filled. People pumping gas. Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, we have some in this country, but there's a lot in the Middle East. There's gold there. And when other nations need that, they're going to go there to get it. And it's interesting, that place of nothingness will become the focal point of the world's largest and final war, Armageddon. You say, well, I don't believe in that stuff. Well, you know what? I'm 67 years old, and I remember when that was nothing over there. Nothing. The Word, the word of God says that Israel will bloom like, it will, they'll be bloom in the desert. They have, they have, a lot of times you'll buy oranges, they're from Israel. Because that de- they've turned that desert place into a place of beauty, just as predicted in the Bible. And they are hated. I had a friend that was in the Navy. He was a weapons officer on one of the ships stationed over. And he said, there's no military like the Israeli military. They are incredible. They are prepared to defend themselves. And someday, whoever that will be, nations will converge down there for a mighty, mighty war. You don't see it at all lining up now? Iran, Iraq, these are no places. A lot of our friends lost their lives in Iraq in that war. All this stuff is all lining up. Somebody said to me, it's scary. No, I think it kind of puts validity to the Bible. I believe in the last days we're coming into them. There's going to be so much proof that God is real you're going to have an opportunity to choose. It's not going to be gray area. It's going to, you can believe or you don't believe. It's going to be that clear. And then we're going to see history prove itself out. And according to what the Bible says, the Holy Spirit who abides in you and I will be taken out of this earth. Then all hell is going to break loose. I don't want to be here for that. People will still get saved, but it's going to be incredible. There are so many things that go on the Bible, too many coincidences. For me to reject this book as a, a falsehood, it's not true. There have been too many biblical skeptics and enemies who have turned to accept this book as truth when they went out, went out to disprove its validity. I can't remember the Chicago Tribune guy. Can you remember his name that wrote the book about the Bible being the truth? What's the name of the book? Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I actually did a movie about it. This guy was a... a 
I met him. I can't even think of his name. Anyway, he worked with John Maxwell for a while. He went out to disprove the Bible, and he was a reporter for, I believe, the Chicago Sun-Times, and he, he became a believer. He could not disprove it. He went out of his way to disprove it, and he could not disprove it. But you know what's interesting? At least he went out of his way to disprove it. I would challenge you to do it. Open this thing up. Read it. It's too confusing. Then go to, go to Hackman's. Go online. Get a New Living Translation. And it puts it in modern-day language and read it. And tell me that you're not seeing something that's going to start stirring something in you. It's true. It's a truth. So... It'd be interesting for you to realize how many people that set out to disprove it ended up being believers in Jesus Christ. So let me end this series with this. Let me ask you today, as I did last week, you need to make a choice. A choice that's the difference between life and death, peace and torment. And here's what I had started right in the beginning. Do you accept the Bible as the word of God? Why doesn't God talk to me? He does right here. It says right in this book that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What does that mean? When you speak what the word says, it does something. You speak that over your life as Jesus did. Number two, are you willing to take the time to read and understand it as if your life depended upon it? Because it does. And three, are you willing to change your mind and your heart from what you heard or believe to what you find to be the truth? You, gotta, you have to get a lot of guts to say, I, I know what everybody else says. I know I may lose some friends because I believe this to be true. And thank God for these guys. That God forbid you bring the Bible to school. You think we're becoming more modernized. But, you know, I remember, well, it's, this is, well that was real corny. No, it wasn't. We didn't have all the crap going on when I was growing up that's going on now. When we went to school, we did the Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag, we read a scripture, and we all prayed. Because it was generally accepted that God is God. But not anymore. And look at all the crap going on. And scientists and psychologists are trying to figure what the heck is going on. Because nobody knows what's right or wrong anymore. So, faith begins in your heart. It's confessed with the mouth, and is proven by our everyday actions. And the Bible says, the just shall live by faith. The Bible says, without faith, Faith, it's impossible to believe God. Faith in what? Faith is believing what this says. And, and, and if the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you confess him that he is the Son of God, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he died for you on the cross, this is what the Bible says, you will be saved. What's it mean to be saved? You will be protected, preserved, provided for. You have hope. You have peace. It grows over time. But that's what being born again is all about. What are you going to do with Jesus? Because this book says there's no way to get to the Father except through the Son. I didn't write the book. This is what it says. What are you going to do with Jesus? Well, what are people going to think? Guys, they're not going to stand with you. You're going to stand before God on your own. And it could be tomorrow. There's no word, word of God that says you, you, you're going to live... You're going to live a full life, and God determines what that full life is. And if that full life is tomorrow, you'll stand before God. The Bible says when you die, you immediately go 
before the Father. And you'll be judged. And there's only one thing that's going to save your hide. What do you do with Jesus Christ? Is he the son of God? Did he die for you on the cross? Or you just don't care? Well, you will. You will someday. You'll be sorry you didn't care. I'm like preaching to the choir here, I know. but Guys, read it. I have found in my experience that when something goes on in my body or in my mind or around me, I believe what Jesus said. What you show, whatsoever you shall bind on earth, if it's already been bound in heaven, it will be bound in my life. I can't stop world wars. I can't heal every ch dying child, but I can do affect what's going on in my life. I can affect. When I feel pain in my body, I speak to it. When there's a situation going on in a close relation, I speak to it. And the Bible says that every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God will not return void, but will accomplish what he sent it to do and prosper in the thing that he meant it to accomplish. So what do you do with Jesus? And what do you do with this? Here's what the Bible says, and I'm done. This is the will of God, that all men be saved. And I just told you how you get saved. And listen to this, and come into the knowledge of the truth. How do you come into the knowledge of the truth? Back when we had it together, in a courtroom, they had you lay your hands on a Bible. How did, what did they say? Do you promise to tell the truth and the whole truth? Nothing but it so help you God? They don't do that anymore. Right and wrong was based on Ten Commandments. They used to be in courtrooms. They're taken down. What's right? What's wrong now? Majority rule. Actually, not even majority. The loudest minority rules. That's sad. What are you going to do with Jesus? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I never close a service without presenting you with an opportunity not to embarrass you, but right there in your seat. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. You do it in your seat. We're going to pray a prayer. It's a prayer of dedication to God. It's a promise between you and God. You don't have to pray it, but God hears it. But we're going to say it, because the Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth the lordship of Jesus, in other words, he's going to be your Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, because a lot of people don't. Confession is made with the, heart, with the mouth. Your faith or your belief is in your heart. We're going to pray that prayer. Let's say, Father, Almighty God, my Creator, I believe with all my heart what your Bible says. It says that all have sinned. We cannot keep the law, but Jesus did it for us. Jesus, I believe that you went to the cross and were punished for my sin. Thank you for being punished for me. Thank you for dying for me. I should be punished, but you took my punishment. Thank you, Jesus. And because you died for my sin, my sins are forgiven. The ones I've done, the ones I may be doing, and the ones I may commit. I can ask you, Lord, to forgive me 
and ask me to change so I don't sin anymore. Jesus, you are the Son of God. I receive you into my heart today as my Lord and Savior. Today I receive you as the Son of God and my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me.